I was about to turn 16 years old. My father took me out to eat one night. He looked at me and he said, now son, in just a few days you're going to get your driver's license. You're going to be driving to places where I won't be. You're going to be with people and I won't be there. And you'll be making decisions about what to do and what not to do. And he said, you're going to catch a lot of pressure from your friends to do what they want you to do. And sometimes, Mike, they're going to want you to do something that you know I won't approve of. And you're going to be caught. You're going to be caught in that moment. Well, who do I make mad? Who do I disappoint? Do I make my friends mad? Do I make my dad mad? Am I more afraid of my friends? Or am I more afraid of my dad? And my dad leaned across the table, caught my glance, my eyes squarely in his, and whispered very lowly, you'd better be more afraid of me. Clarity. (laughs) Never had to worry about the decision from then on understood who I was to be more afraid of. You know, honestly, some days, most days, every day, the choices you will make will some way determine who it is that you are most afraid of. Who is it that you are most afraid of? So it brings us to the story of Gideon. Every little Baptist kid like me knows this story, and every little Baptist kid like me doesn't get it. I, I, I know what it is uh, to be a general, okay? I've never been in the military, but I do watch the History Channel. So I know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get a really big army, with lots of airplanes and lots of cannons, find the other guy's army and blow up the other guy's army. Okay? That's the way it works. Now, you don't stand up and say, if you're scared, go home. That's no way to inspire your troops. That's no way to bring them to battle. If you're afraid, go home. Actually, Gideon was quoting a very old passage of the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy 20. In fact, there's a whole list of things where a young man, if any of these are true about you, you can't go to battle. For instance, if you have planted a vineyard and you haven't uh, yet uh, harvested the grapes, you can stay home. If you planted a field, you have to wait till after the harvest. Then you can go to war. If you are newly married, you can't go off to war. In fact, Deuteronomy says that the young man is supposed to stay home And bring his wife joy. That's a biblical commandment. So now Gideon quotes Deuteronomy 20. If you're scared, go home. Now, one of the reasons I I don't believe so much in evolution all that is, well, (laughs) guys, we haven't changed that much. Okay? We really haven't. Guys are still guys. Put us in a cave around a campfire. Put us somewhere. We're still guys. I want to know the first guy who said he was afraid. Because you know, everybody was going, well, I'm afraid, but I'm not going to move. I'm not going to tell him. Who was the first guy who said, nah, I'm out of here. 
All right. <laughs> then the rest of the guys go, uh, I'm with him. He's scared. I'm going to go home with him, make sure he gets there okay. All right. So 22,000 of them walk off. First guy, I'm scared. I, I, I'm out of here. If you're scared, stay home. We don't have a whole lot of stories in the Bible where scared people did well. Um, you know, Peter walks across the water, gets scared, sees the wind. I love that. When he saw the wind and the waves, somebody says, you can't see the wind. When you were scared as he was, you can't. And he sinks. He is vigorously interrogated by a teenage girl. You're one of them, aren't you? No. And curses and says, I do not know who he was. He was that scared. Moses. John Mark left. We don't know why. Other than we do think that Paul saw it as some kind of cowardice under fire. Because when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark back, Paul would not have it. I trusted him once. You seem to hear Paul say, I won't trust him again. But there are other stories. Other stories of people being afraid. I was in the temple the year King Uzziah died. And I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah's response, woe is me. Help me, God, I'm sunk. As he stays in that worship experience, he hears God say, who will go for us? Who will we send? And Isaiah jumps up in that moment. I'll go. He doesn't ask where. He doesn't ask what he's going to do. He only knows this. This God that has confronted him in this moment demands that he go. And he doesn't ask any questions. Why? I'm more afraid of this than I am anything that is outside. John, sent to the island of Patmos. Rome thought they could cut off the head of the church in Ephesus by sending John to Patmos, probably because he was so old as a reason they didn't kill him, that he's put him out here. Uh, Patmos is the place where the world sends you to get rid of you. Patmos is the place where God brings you when he wants your full attention. And you read the book of Revelation, John is always passing out. Right, he's Always passing out. I was, in the, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and, and, I, and I turned around and saw, bam, passed out. Angel comes, bam, passes out. It's a wonder he didn't hurt himself. He's up and down so much. Finally, angel you know, fell, falls down in worship, and angel says, get up. I'm just like you. I'm just another servant. But he's more afraid of the Christ on that throne than he is Caesar. We thought we told you, the Sanhedrin said, not to preach or teach anymore in the name of this one called Jesus. And Peter and John say, whether it is right or wrong, that's up to you. We can only tell you what we have seen and heard. We're more afraid of Jesus than we are you. So who is it that you are most? What happens in this moment where you won't turn back, you won't compromise, 
because you're more afraid of the risen Christ than the one who confronts you. I just finished reading a book called God is Red. It's about the suffering of the Christian church under the rule of communist China. And I read the book. Because, see, we thought we, that, that the Chinese government had just about killed Christianity. What we found out is that there are millions of Christians in China, and they have found a way to survive above ground and underground. They have found a way to survive house to house, sometimes mother to child, father to child. Sometimes pastors would preach from two or three pieces of paper that they had found from the New Testament, and that would be their whole Bible. That would, all they would preach on would be two or three chapters from the book of John. That's all they had found. Sometimes they were persecuted. Sometimes they were executed. Sometimes they were taken from their families and put in jail. Their family unable to see them for 16, 17 years. Their families left to starve. And I wonder, would I be tough enough? Would I be strong enough? to survive as a Chinese Christian. And what about you? We're sending you out to a situation that is harder now than any time in my life. We have theologians and historians writing that it's never been more difficult for the church than since the first century, than trying to be in postmodern America. Used to be there was a cultural politeness. People would find out I was a minister. There would be a cultural politeness. Now, I'm routinely attacked from people I don't even know. I'm Mike Glenn. Mike, what do you do? I'm the pastor of Brentwood Baptist Church. Do you really believe that? And they will follow with a string that I cannot repeat in chapel. I hate you Christians and will give me a long list of everything that the church has done wrong. And this will be in the line at the grocery store. This will be in the stalls of the bookstore. I'll be confronted now. Now you can be anything but a Christian. Mike, we'd like for you to pray. Okay. You do know that I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. You are? Yes, I'm a Christian. I will pray as a Christian. I don't expect a rabbi to pray as a Christian. I don't expect an imam to pray as a Christian. I expect him to pray in according to their tradition, and I will pray in according to mine. I don't get asked to pray anymore. That's the world you're in. Oh, give up this thing about we're a Christian nation. Do you still believe that? Do you, st do you still believe that? Who is the most influential religious leader in America today? Who is it? Oprah. Oprah. Hired a research assistant to work with our pastoral preaching team. The first thing she did was order O Magazine. I'm getting, I go to my mailbox, I get O Magazine. I said, what are you doing to me? I can't walk through here with old magazine under my arm. Her answer, she 
is a spiritual leader of your women, you need to know what she's teaching you. Lance Armstrong confesses to whom? Not Billy Graham. Oprah. The career path to being a successful pastor, it's over. Some of you will never pastor full-time. You will work full-time in another career, and you will pastor house churches, and you will oversee 20 and 30 community groups in godless places like Chicago, in godless places like Nashville, Tennessee. And you will change the world one living room at a time, one street at a time, and that'll be the place where you are. Yes, it has never been harder, but on the other hand, it has never been more freeing. So when did it happen for you? I'll tell you when it happened for me. We had started Kairos. Tuesday night we have Kairos. Um, it's, it's a young adult worship experience. Uh, some of the singles who have grown I've been there long enough that a lot of the kids have now grown up. And all of these singles were now vice presidents of banks and executives and, and local firms. Really, really sharp young people. And they, they took me out to lunch and they said, hey, we want to do a citywide a young worship experience, and we'd like for you to help us. And they had the PowerPoints. They had the demographics. Uh, it, was, it was impressive. I was really proud of my kids. And I said, we want you to help us. And I said, okay, I'll help you get it started, but I'm much too busy as a senior pastor to help you get it done. And so we started. I would preach. I would teach. I would go hang out. And they would sit and talk to me until 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Tipping point came one night. We had been preaching about how you deal with fathers when you're angry. Because if you don't deal with your father, you're stuck. So we came to it, and, I, and there, was, there was a stationery on all the tables. And I said, okay, we're going to write your dad tonight. I said, I don't care if the letter says, dear dad, I don't want to hate you anymore. If that's all you got, that's all you got. Then we're going to mail it. A couple of weeks later, one, one young lady was standing next to me, standing straight, staring straight ahead. She said, I guess you want to know what happened to my letter. I said, well, you got a story? She said, yeah, he called me. He wants to go out to dinner. Well, isn't that what you wanted? What am I going to talk to him about? I said, well, that, that's, I'd start off with hi. Well, let's see how it goes from there. She says, you know, I've hated him so long, I don't know how to talk to him. But as they spread out across that room and they would lay on the floor and they would write and they would bury their heads and they would cry and they would write. And I told them, if you get stuck, I'll be sitting over here. Come talk to me. And they would bring their letters and they would read their letters. I didn't think I was going to be able to hear anymore. There was one young girl who kept making sure she was last. You ever seen that happen? She kept standing back, letting everybody go. She wanted to make sure she was last. And finally, when nobody else was there, she sat down and handed me a blank piece of paper. My daddy started abusing me when I was six years old, she said. What do I write? I left the worship service telling myself, just get to your car. I got to my car and put my head down on my steering wheel, and I wept till I had run out of tears. And my prayer was, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what it will take, but I'll tell you this. You'll tell me what it is. I'll do 
nine years I've been teaching on Tuesday night. My leaders told me, you're spreading yourself too thin, Mike. I said, nah, okay, I'll give up Sunday. <laughs> they look at me and say, why, why would you do that? I said, do the math. I said, you guys walk in late looking at your watch yawning, hoping I'll let you out so you can beat the Methodist to the restaurant. I said, my kids on Tuesday night show up early. They text each other. They, should, they save uh, seats for their friends. They will text me in the middle of my sermon. I will be preaching, and my phone will be vibrating, where they would have instant messaged me or something about something I've said, something they want me to follow up with. I said, now you do the math. Where would you rather be? And so I started taking on the church bureaucracy and anybody else because I'm more afraid that there'll be some 20-something-year-old in Nashville who will never hear that they're created in the image of God, the price that Christ paid for them, and that he has something for them to do. I told the story one night uh, about the Antique Roadshow. You ever watch that? I love that show. Funny as all get out. Because there's always a guy who thinks he has something. The guy says, nah, there's a couple of million of these. worth about five bucks. But there's always Bubba who has no clue what he has. Right? No clue. Right? He'll lay it down, and, and, and an expert will put on the gloves and start hyperventilating. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you know, oh, where did you get this? Grandma gave it to me. Oh, what do you do with it? I keep changing. Oh, oh, oh. you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, no, no. He said, and he said well, well, how much is it worth? And, and, the, and the expert would pick it up and say, oh, see, this was signed. And this guy was a friend of Paul Revere's. There's three of them in the world. Oh, there's one in the Smithsonian. There's one in the museum in Philadelphia. We didn't know where the third one was. <gasps> you have it. How much is it worth? I can't tell you. And I told my my young adults, I wish I could grab you and turn you upside down and say, see, see, this is where God signed you. You are a bearer of the Imago Dei. I cannot tell you what you're worth. I can't tell you this. On the day that the world demanded the price be paid for you, God loved you so much he gave you his only son. I cannot tell you what you're worth. Stood afterwards and cried, men and women, me holding them while they sobbed. And they said, nobody told me I was signed. I would be different if I felt signed. One of my favorite stories is the story of the four friends. Guys are guys. You know what happened? The night before they said, hey, we hear that, that, that rabbi, rabbi from Galilee, he's, he's coming. Let's get our buddy. We'll take him in the morning, okay? So they grab their friend, and they're running across town. He's bouncing around. He, guys, don't do this to me. Don't, don't take me anywhere. Just leave me. Do- no, no, guys, we're going we to do this. And they get there, and they see the crown. They put their friend down, and it sets in. We can't, we can't get him there. We can't. We can't get to Jesus. And their friends laying on the, on, on, the, on the ground going, well, guys, listen, I love you for trying. This was, a, this was, you know, I can't tell you how much it means to me that you guys would even try. I, I, I love you for it. I do. And you know what one of them said. They're guys. The only way to get there would be through the roof. <laughs> one of the other guys said, you know, when I was a kid, I tore the roof off our house. I thought my dad was going to kill me. But you know, it's not that hard. Now, on the ground, he's going, oh, come on, guys. Come on, guys. You're not going to do this to me now. And finally, the leader of the gang says, yeah. 
I think we can do the roof. Well, we have to move fast. Yeah, we're down. Boom, here we go. Up steps onto the roof. Now, you're thinking that it's a 12-foot ceiling. You're thinking he's way up there. And, no, it's, a, it's barely over six feet. I have to duck in most of the, when I do the tours of the Holy Land. I have to duck when I go in, okay? So he's like right here. Jesus sitting right here. He's like right here, okay? Now, they have to tear the hole in the roof, okay? Get, get the adobe out, get the sticks out. Now, the guy who owns the house, he sees these guys tearing his roof up. So he's making a beeline to the roof. These guys got to work fast. So you know you think they had this big hole. All the pictures you saw when you were a little kid had this big hole, right? You know they didn't do that. They're guys. They got a little hole, and they folded him up. (laughs) And they eased him down, right? And he's eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. He's eyeball to eyeball. He's just floating right here. And he's, please, Jesus, don't be mad. I was, I was laying back down there, and those guys grabbed me, and, and they dropped me in this hole. I, don't get mad at me. It was their fault. And then Mark tells us that Jesus looked at the four friends, and he saw their faith. Faith that was more afraid that Jesus would come and their friend wouldn't be healed. faith that was more afraid got on the house. If you're scared, go home. If you're really scared, find a way.